Hi, I'm Dr. Jared, and welcome to the Plantastic Podcast, a show for plant killers, green thumbs, and everyone else in between. Listen along as I deconstruct the craft and practices of remarkable horticulturists so that you can better cultivate your plants and yourself. Let's grow. This episode of the Plantastic Podcast is brought to you by Cephalanthus occidentalis, or buttonbush. I so admire this native shrub blooming at the height of summer with an incredible inflorescence. They are white orbs. Technically, they're not flat buttons, so don't expect to go fixing a shirt with them. But their shape can be likened to a funky disco ball or the Times Square ball that drops on New Year's Eve. Each sphere has over 100 tubular flowers that attract many species of bees, butterflies, and beneficial insects like aureus. If you weren't intrigued enough by the shape, wait until you hear about its pollination strategy. Button bush flowers are what we call protandrous, which means that the pollen is present before the female stigma is receptive, and this helps to encourage crossing. But the interesting part is that buttonbush exhibits what we call secondary pollen presentation. Now, normally we gardeners are used to pollen being on the male stamens. But with buttonbush, pollen from the stamen is deposited on the stigma inside the individual flowers before they open. And then the style elongates as the flower opens, pushing the stigma out. The first day... The stigma is not receptive, and it's just holding the pollen there for pollinators. But on the second day, the stigma becomes receptive, and the pollen can then germinate for fertilization. And really, I should add, it's only pollen from other individuals, from cross-pollination, that has good seed set. Once seed are formed, they're eaten by wildlife like shorebirds and waterfowl, and the dried orbs that hang on the plant into winter provide nice late-season interest. Near our house, we find buttonbush in wet ditches and low spots in fields, as this plant likes wet feet, and I often see it used on the edges of rain gardens or bioswales. It has a wild texture, softened a bit by the large glossy leaves that are opposite or whirled up and down the stem. Plants can grow anywhere from 3 to 10 feet tall and propagate readily from cuttings and seed. Native from California to Florida, up to Maine, and over to Minnesota, and hardy in USDA zones 5 through 11, buttonbush is a great addition to a wet spot in your garden. You can find this plant and many more at your favorite local garden center or mail-order nursery. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Plantastic Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jared. Summer is in full swing, and it is so exciting seeing the bounty coming in from the garden. Tomatoes, squash, and peppers have been filling our kitchen counters the past few weeks as we rush to process and put up what we can. It is the season of abundance. And speaking of abundance, this month's guest shared an abundance of plant knowledge with me. And he's my first international guest. With this interview, I had the great pleasure of getting to know Matt Biggs, who is a graduate of the Royal Botanic Gardens Q and a well-known British gardener, broadcaster, and the author of 15 gardening and plant-related books. 
He has presented numerous television programs like Garden Club, stepped behind the camera to direct Meridian Television's popular gardening series, Grassroots, and worked as a horticultural consultant for Garden Design series. Matt contributes to several magazines, including the Royal Horticulture Society journal The Garden, BBC Gardener's World, Country File, and Gardens Illustrated. And he leads garden tours worldwide. He lectures at the Royal Botanic Gardens Q, Oxford University Botanic Gardens, and is course director of the Plants and Plantsmanship course at the English Gardening School. Matt is also a regular panelist on BBC Radio 4's Gardener's Question Time. You can learn more about Matt by visiting his website, matthewbiggs.com. That's M-A-T-T-H-E-W-B-I-G-G-S dot com. And also by visiting theplantasticpodcast.com for show notes from this episode. We go deep on a number of topics in this interview, including his new book, A Home for Every Plant. And as you'll hear, Matt's enthusiasm is contagious. Just talking to him and hearing him share about the wonders of the plant world puts a smile on your face. I feel like we could have talked for hours, and I would have been soaking up every ounce of knowledge and story that he shared. So without further ado, enjoy this plantastic conversation with Matt Biggs. Hi, Matt, and welcome to the Plantastic Podcast. I am thrilled to have you on today. Thank you so much for having me. My goodness, this is really exciting. Yes, It yes. just goes to show horticulture and love of plants has no boundaries. Yes, it does. You're my first international guest, too, so I'm thrilled to have you speaking today from the UK. Oh, I'm even more honored. That's wonderful. Thank you. Yes, yes. So I love to start off the conversation asking, where do people's passion for plants germinate? Yeah, it's an interesting question to ask, actually, Jared, because my answer really should be my mum gave me some seeds as a child. I sowed them and wow, when they germinated, I was hooked and it stayed with me forever. It wasn't quite like that. My mother grew a lot of vegetables. We had a big veg garden. My father loved nature, so he would take us walking. He would certainly point out the flowers, and so we could see the seasons as we were out walking. But it's uh, it was a bit of a slow burn, to be very honest with you. I left school at 16 with no great qualifications. I had lots of interests, particularly in the natural world. And my dad said to me, he said, just go and get a job. So I got a job as a clerk in the housing department on the 13th floor of a block overlooking a city in the middle of the UK. Of course, I then realised I felt trapped. This was not the place for me. And I used to look at the gardeners working in the gardens around from that 13th floor. And I just thought, do you know, I'm really quite interested in plants. It would give me an opportunity to get outside I wonder if I could be a gardener as a living and do it and do it as a living. And I did lots of research, ended up at a horticultural college and I was hooked and I've never looked back. And I just I'm like you, Jared. I regard myself as so fortunate to have a job that's so exciting and varied. And you learn you learn something new every day. Yes, you do. And that's one of the things I love about plants is you're constantly outside learning, engaging with it and learning new things from people as well, too. 
Can I tell you something I learned yesterday? Yeah. That there is an akebia, a, a scrambling plant, really, and very vigorous, akebia quinata or akebia longaracimosa, which I've got in my garden. And it has long dangly, or both have long dangly flowers with the female flowers at the top and the male at the bottom. Now, I was just checking this out. Somebody asked me a question said and said, do you need two different plants? And I thought, hang on a minute, I've got one in my garden and it doesn't fruit. The fruit are extraordinary. They're like great big purple balloons, almost oddly shaped balloons. So they it's smell only, like if chocolate you can get it to, too, right? Smell like chocolate? Yeah, the flowers. Oh, yeah. wow. The flowers are just incredible. It's a really amazing smell. Yeah. Have you got one, Jared? I've been at places before where it's been growing. It's a good vine for us to have here in the southeast. Yeah, no, it's it, but it, but vigorous or, or what? It's massive. A- anyway, I said to them, "Oh, yeah, no, it's fine. You should be all right with two plants." And then I thought about it and thought, "It's definitely not self-pollinating because mine doesn't produce fruit." Two plants, and then I did a little bit more research and think, and I was thinking, in the UK, are all the Akebia quinata from one original introduction? Because that oh, often happens yeah. that over the years it's been propagated and propagated just by division rather than growing from seed. So you've got a plant to start off with. Was, amazingly, a little bit of further research and, and digging around. And I found, in fact, that you actually need two separate clones. So you do need two plants, but they can't be two of the same. So I directed this person in the end to a nursery called Krug Farm Plants in Wales. And Sue and Blethyn, who own the nursery, have been plant collecting a lot. And they, and I thought they're the only ones who are likely to have different clones to the ones that the person would have brought, would have bought in the garden centre in the UK. Now, and I sat there at the end of it, thought, wow, that is fantastic. Isn't that exciting? It's a sort of question that nobody asks you normally. Jared, you must get these, you know, quite often where people ask you a question. You go, nobody's asked me that at all. And nobody in all my years in gardening had ever asked a question about getting fruit on a Kibia quinata. So that was the excitement the, the day before yesterday. And that's if you, we in horticulture don't tend to make a fortune financially, but are we are billionaires in interest, in excitement, and in passion, and we have so many other riches and qualities in our lives. So that that explains to me why I don't get fruit on my akebia at all. How I could, interestingly, as well. Sorry, just a, another thing is there is. A hybrid in literature, and it was called Akebia, I think it was Platyphila, a hybrid between Akebia quinata and Akebia longarasimosa. So I did hmm. say to the person, if they wanted something slightly different, so you've got two different species rather than two clones of the same plant, then, you know, why not have a go? Because they might hybridize. Yeah. And it was just true. a really, and it made my day. Yeah, I love discovering more wonder about the plant world because there's something about learning fun, interesting stories like that makes us have this sense of awe and makes us feel a little bit smaller and the world around us bigger and it's more connected. And we have issues in the States with Asclepius, 
the milkweeds. Okay. A yeah, lot yeah. of them, a lot of them, you have to have a different clone for good seed sets. A lot of people will produce them from seed, but some people will sometimes do root cuttings. And yeah. so you've got to get it from clones. So yeah, that's definitely so that's my fact for the day for today. <laughs> I know. Yeah, that's great. And I loved your comment too about how we feel like we're billionaires because we have some of the greatest jobs in the world being outside mm-hmm. and sharing the love of plants. Yes. And the other interesting thing about it, and I think that's what appeals. So when I first started, I worked on a parks department. I worked for a local authority. And fun, funnily enough, I actually... I was thinking, oh, great, I'm going to work in the greenhouses and going to learn about cacti and passion flowers. I'm going to go out into the gardens and learn about pruning roses and honeysuckles and climbers and really get stuck in. And the first job they gave me, or among the first jobs they gave me, was to clean the toilets every day. Mm. And I, and interestingly, I think they probably did that on purpose to see how keen I was if you can clean the toilets first thing every day and then go out and do your do your work and when I went to queue as a student later on we used to do pot washing in February in the winter obviously outside (laughs) with a tank of a galvanized tank full of water stacks of dirty pots a a horrible sort of rubber canvas rubberized canvas apron and rub, rubber gloves. And so you were dipping your hands in the cold. And that was, again, it was going, can you take it, Mark? Can you take yeah, it? Yeah. I hated it. But you go, yeah, you've got, to, you've got to do this for, and I suppose it was a life lesson, really. You have to go through the tough stuff yeah. to get to the fun. Yeah, it's a filter too. It's almost like mm-hmm. helping the people figure out very quickly if this is what you want to do and go through it. Yeah. And there's days, yeah, there's days when I'm outside sweating with students too. And it's hot and it's humid, but yeah. it's like you said, it's part of it developing that work ethic. It's coping with climates, isn't it? Because like you say, if you're outside with your students, you're, it's extreme weather that you have yeah. to endure. And we have to endure sometimes extreme cold. In the UK, sometimes we have often our high temperatures go with humidity. So that's uh, so there's a lot of sort of stresses on the body to go with with our profession uh, and yet of course the rewards are incalculable yes very true so tell us more about your time at q yeah so i that was honestly jared that was a game changer i wouldn't be doing what i'm doing now without that because in those days and still now they only take about 16 20 students it took me two goes to get in i'll be honest with you they said to me go back and get some supervisory experience. So I went, yeah, okay. So I went back to the parks department. And I hope nobody from Q is listening to this, but I reapplied. They said, come and have a chat with us. Uh, On one day between those two dates, my supervisor had been away. The assistant supervisor was away. I was the next in line and there was one person below me. So that was just for one day. And I thought, I can't lie. I will wait and see how they word the question and I will have to answer accordingly. And Jared, they said to me, and I'll never forget this, there was five people on the panel, all fearsome looking on a narrow table, looking at you, the little me, the other side with all these sort of glaring eyes. And somebody said, Matthew, have you had any supervisory experience? 
And of course, the answer to that was yes. Uh, <laughs> yes said, how, how much have you had? Or, or what have you, but all they said is, have you had any supervisory experience? And my supervisory experience was supervising one person for one day. Yes. But it was it was a correct answer to the question, so I got yes. away with it yes. and was thrilled, thrilled to bits. And what I did was I had a friend, so in fact still do, who was a, a product designer. And I said to Pete, I said, look, Pete, there's one thing that will get me into queue because I know there's some really skilled horticulturists, even though we were young, lots of experience getting in there. And I said, I know that I can talk, I can chat and and hopefully sh- share my enthusiasm with people because I said, because I just love it. I said, if you could make me a little model so I could demonstrate chip budding, mm-hmm. uh, then right at the end, they asked people to give a, little, a three minute talk. And I said, if you could do that, then it'd be great. And he had a piece of MDF and he cut a section out of a broom handle he made the bud from a part of the broom handle or the chip bud. The bud itself within that was actually blue tack painted. And it was be- it actually was beautifully done. And I took something, I think it was a Crataegus that had been chip, chip bud. It was something like that. And I took it in and I put my little, and they said, Matt, have you got, Matthew, do you have anything that you could talk about to give us a talk? And I knew that a lot of people, or I'd gathered a lot of people didn't. So I thought, wow, this is my moment. So I've got rummaged around in my bag and out came this little model and out came my chip budded, I guess, or whatever it was. And away I went and I was able to demonstrate it. And I always think that's what got me through, just the fact that I was able to I was willing to have a go. And that's what I would say to your listeners. A lot of our gardening is about learning from other people like yourself, Jared, through from your learning from your experience. It's about reading the correct places and learning from other people's experience. But most of it is hands on. And the lovely thing about it is that if you make a mistake, if you think, oh, that I'm going to try this then and it doesn't work you will have learned why it didn't work and so it's this gaining experience and with experience you gain i think you gain a little bit of i don't know you become a little bit streetwise you understand that not everything you're going to do is going to be successful for example you learn to improvise i there's a really Quite a nice gooseberry. I've got some vertical cordons of gooseberries in my garden alongside some fans of white currants. And I wanted more vertical cordons. They were quite expensive and I couldn't really afford to buy sort of six or seven to cover this piece of wall. So what I did last winter was that I bought a gooseberry Hinamaki Red which is bred in Finland and is really disease resistant. It's resistant to to mildew. And there's almost also a Hinamaki yellow. I bought two plants and I then took hardwood cuttings from them straight away. And so from the two plants, I've now got seven, which will fill my gap this coming autumn. Ah, and that's yes, so it's gar- gardening on a budget, really. And <laughs> but, but what you do is the lovely thing about plants is that they help you from many like you were talking about propagation 
just before we started re- recording. And it's you can take cuttings and and layering and seed and, le- and leaf cuttings. There are so many different ways of propagating plants. And if you are on a budget and are prepared to wait, then you can build up your garden. And of course, you have to divide plants anyway i just i once gave a talk actually at a garden club like you do jared you know how it is and it's great <laughs> to meet the meet the people isn't it real yes. gardeners and they'll tell you things that you've never experienced i went to there was somebody from q who i knew called brian matthew who's like a was the authority on bulbs and he was a lovely man and he said to me once he said can you come and give a chat at claygate gardening club which is, he said, I'm the chairman. He said, but we haven't got much of a budget. And I wanted to go because he's such a nice guy and he'd done so much for horticulture with the books that he'd written. And I'd read his books and got his a, a massive knowledge really for very little money. When you buy a book, you're getting a massive knowledge for very little money. So mm-hmm. I said to him, look, Brian, why don't you put fill my car full of petrol so i can get there and back and when you're dividing your bulbs over the coming year please can you send me anything i've got an area i've created and so over this year i got box these boxes kept on turning up jared it was like it was like christmas every (laughs) sort of couple of months a box had turned oh yeah this is from this is from brian and something i don't know wild collected crocus they might have been muscari yeah miniature daffodils any anything small that you could fit into the box i would get perhaps one two or three and gardeners always build up the collections by sharing so i think uh, your question was actually about about my time at q it was unbelievable it was pressurized we had to do a day's work and then write a thesis or whatever it be in the evening. Hmm. So they, again, really put you under pressure to see how much you liked it. But I worked for six months in a building called the Temperate House. Any of your listeners who want to see how glorious that is, then just Google Q Temperate House. And that was my place of work for six months. I worked in what's called the Princess of Wales Conservatory, yeah. which has 10... 10 different climatics. Have you been, Jared? Yes, we went last summer and visited Q, my wife and I. We actually went through the Princess of Wales Conservatory. I remember that. I hope you were impressed. Yes. Oh, very much. Q is just an incredible place to come visit. And actually, I was there in grad school, too, back in 2010. Whenever we Really? Yeah, we did a trip abroad with NC State. And so... We spent a morning at Kew, and I got a chance to walk around and visit it then, too. So it's a spectacular botanic garden. It was. We were told by the supervisor of studies that, that, and I know a lot of American botanical gardens and other botanical gardens around the globe debate this over coffee for hours. But we were told (laughs) that the Kew, because of its history, was the greatest botanical gardens in the world. I'm bound to say that anyway. But as a collection and the diversity within the collection, the history, the archives, even things like the botanical paintings, mm-hmm. there was so much to to learn and so much knowledge. People who had worked there. There was a very interesting chap called Alan Cook, who was about sort of five foot tall, really wrinkled face, tiny little goatee beard, dark piercing cold black eyes and he was a funny little chap really and he once came up to me and he said do you know Matthew do you know here is my list of my 25 favorite spring flowering bulbs 
and he just rattled them off. And I was standing there thinking, <laughs> wow, that's incredible. And, his spe- and the crazy thing was his speciality was grasses. Hmm. That was the kind of, those were the kind of people you were working with. And that was the kind of knowledge that you were exposed to. But also you felt while you were training there, worked in a temperate nursery as well. That was absolutely great. And met a conservationist called George Benjamin, who received the British Empire Medal for his conservation work on the island of St. Helena, because St. Helena was suffering because of a lot of invasive species that had been introduced. And he was trying to educate the children. He'd started a little nursery to propagate some of their endangered... I think they got about sort of 12 endangered species there. And we were working when George Benjamin came over to the UK. And so you'd meet people like him. You'd be working, propagating rare plants. And it was just like almost an avalanche of knowledge. And you could... I look back on those years and think about the privilege that went with. I have fortunate. But also, people say, do you think you made the most of it? And I don't think you can because there's just too much stuff going on, really. Yeah. Too much. Yeah. But yeah. I agree with your synopsis about Q being one of, if not the greatest botanic garden in the world. And I think most Americans who are in the botanical horticulture world would agree that just again, like you said, because of its story and history and herbarium and just everything else it has, it's incredible. So one of the questions I wanted to ask is, since it is so great, if you were going to teach a class about things you learned at Q, the practices and craft of horticulture, what are two or three things that you would want the students, whether they be adult or college students, when they come out of that class, What are two or three things you would really want them to walk away from knowing? Right. Okay. The first one, and I think a really important one, and it'd be interesting to see what you think of this one. But to me is, if you're going to grow a plant or buy a plant, say you're going to go to the garden center and buy a plant, it would be wise to make two journeys. One to go and write down a list of plants that you like. The other one is to understand where it comes from. So the soil type, whether it needs sun or shade, how it's pruned, it's the ultimate height and spread. Because I think a lot of people go go and buy trees without checking out the ultimate height and spread and causing themselves problems. So try and find out about the plant beforehand. And I think that's really important. Now, do we do that? I think the answer is no, because come on, Jared, you've been to the garden, you know, been to the garden search. Going, oh, I'll tell you what, that's lovely. I'll buy that. I'll buy that. And you and you are seduced by its beauty, and then you get it back home, and then you think, oh my goodness, I haven't got moisture retentive, acidic soil in deep shade or whatever it is. Right. But so I would say that if you were, if I was with a class of people, then I would say to them, build up a fund of knowledge about the plants. Another thing relating to climate, which I think is interesting, is to say you're a head gardener or a garden budding garden designer. If you are a budding garden designer, by the way, I would say to you, go and do gardening first, because quite a lot of the garden designers I know, they have a set list of plants, but they don't really know about how they grow and the needs of the plants. So their gardens will look lovely but their plants won't necessarily necessarily thrive. The other thing, and I work on a, again, privilege, I work on a programme called Gardener's Question Time on, B, on BBC Radio 4. And basically, be, we'll go to village halls, we'll go to all sorts of places around the UK. There are three of us on the panel, the chairman, 
and the ladies and gentlemen from the from the area were coming with their gardening questions. And again, some of those are really interesting. But one of the chair, the, there's a chair lady who's absolutely lovely, who's not a horticulturist, so therefore asks the right questions because she asks, if we assume knowledge, she goes, yes, but what about, so she, mm. she extracts information. Peter Gibbs was a weatherman on the BBC, so he was a broadcaster. And I had a long chat with him recently about microclimates in the garden. So yes. there are, and I suddenly looked at my garden in a completely different way and went, yeah, you're right. The wind does funnel round here. That is e- east facing. North in, in the UK, north facing walls do get sunshine for a couple of hours in the evening, in uh, evening and in the morning. So it's not all this sort of blanket stuff. It's about finding out about the plants and what they would need. So I, I think there, there's a couple of things about the the location of the garden i think the other thing is that people need to understand that you gardening satisfies in many different ways and that's why it has a broad appeal so you don't necessarily we do need to know the latin names you and i jared even though they keep on changing them to keep us on our toes (laughs) but we need to know the latin names because it's a science, there's botany and horticulture that involves science. But what people need to know is it doesn't. I don't think it necessarily matters if the if the regular gardener doesn't learn them. I don't think they should be intimidated by that fact. What's yeah, really important is that they should appre- they should appreciate the beauty. If you want to take it a stage further, then that's fine. But when when you with my group of students, I would say to them, now look, get to know plants because some of them have really interesting histories. They have really fascinating ways of pollination or seed dispersal. They might have they might be epiphytes. They might be from the rain. So get to know the stories. Uh, and I, quite a few of the plants in my garden have stories. I've discovered quite late on in life that I love stories. So I've got a collection, for example, of heritage fruit, heritage apples in the front garden on on cordons. So I can get 26. There are 26 different varieties, cookers and eaters. And okay, you don't get a lot from a cordon, but you get enough to taste and and you don't have to have a lot of storage either for storing the fruit but the other thing is that i love the stories that go with them so there was an english writer in around the early part of the sort of 1900s in fact he wrote up until just before the beginning of the second world war and his family owned a nursery they were rosarians and fruit growers and he was also a very keen cook as well and he and his sister wrote a cookery book but he had edward bunyard's top 12 apples for flavor and for time for time of year and i've got some of because out of respect from edward bunyard and interestingly edward bunyard's hang on let me finish that sentence out of respect for edward bunyard i've got some of his fruit growing and interestingly edward bunyard actually wrote between the two world wars, wrote a proposal as to how Britain would survive if there was a blockade that stopped the import of food from abroad. So the dig for victory that was in the UK, and you had that in the US as well, but our dig for victory was based on the suggestions like plant trials, 
like stockpiling seed for the war, about writing pamphlets for education and booklets. All those came from Edward Bunyard. And his. I was lucky to actually see the original copy of his typed out text with his wow. recommendations for the for growing your own and the survival of Britain that led to dig for victory. So I've got some of his fruit growing in my front garden. And so the, the fruit tastes good. The blossom's lovely. There's the history of Edward Bunyard. There's the commemoration of him as a person. And then in little other little areas, there are it is the gardener's art because the garden is an amazing art form as well for creatives. If you think about Monet, the artist, Monet painted a lot in his garden. In fact, his water lilies were the paintings of them were Mar- Marliac water lilies, and they were some of the only, when well, definitely the first records of those cultivars in as an image in paint. Yeah, that's amazing. I've been to his garden too. It's beautiful in France. It, yeah, it's it is incredible. And with, without digressing too much, the lovely thing about it is that okay, it's not exactly as it was in Monet's day. You know, the cultivars have, have changed, but layout and what have you, and the, the vibe is still the same. But you're walking through. Whenever I used to take groups there, you're walking through a living impressionist painting. I used yeah. to tell people that if you wear glasses, take your glasses off. If your eyesight's not great, everything's oh. blurred. Or just squint or even look through your camera and get, and then you will get the impressionist idea. Yeah. But it, it's a lovely garden to visit. And every garden is somebody's creativity, whether you agree with it or not, whether it's sophisticated and created by Beatrix Farrand or some or somebody like that had a real eye and understanding for plants, or whether it's somebody next door who's expressing themselves through the art of plants. It, it really just does allow everybody to just do their thing and have fun and uh, just get the biggest buzz possible from this wonderful world of plants that we inhabit. Indeed. You were talking earlier about history and story, and I know that you've written some great books. You've written about the secrets of great botanist, and you've also written RHS lessons from great gardeners for more modern day horticulturists. So I was curious, yeah. what are some of the, maybe what's one or two stories that really touched you from researching those two books? Right. So I was really, most of my earlier books were practical books. So I started off writing about vegetables and houseplants. And then I don't know why, but somebody said to me, Matt, would you like to write a book about 40 great gardeners? So literally it's 800 words. It's a biography summing them all up. And I thought I've never done anything like this before but but i do like stories and of course putting the list together was interesting because they want they wanted american gardeners they wanted british gardeners basically wherever they were hoping to sell the book and so i had this massive list and it was really difficult to whittle it down because obviously you wanted different garden styles in there so huntington gardens for example with its cactus collection and succulents oh the best story the best ever in that book is Lotusland and Jana Valeska. What a what an amazing lady! 
what an incredible garden. Have you been? I have not, but I've had a lot of friends who've been. So tell us the story. She basically was a very beautiful woman. She was ambitious as well. And to put it succinctly, she had a succession of extremely wealthy husbands and was so beautiful that she was proposed to by some of them before she'd even broken up the previous marriage. <laughs> she she had 10 different passports, each with different dates of birth on them. Her first marriage was to a Russian count. And if you look at it, her marriages didn't last very long. Some of them died. Some of them divorced her, obviously couldn't keep up the pace or something. But she was this really incredibly vibrant woman who she thought she was a great opera singer. And so one of her, and we, this is why we're talking proper wealth, one of her husbands bought her an opera house oh. on the Champs-Élysées so that she could sing. And I am desperate. Some Somewhere there must be a recording of her singing. She, I do know that she sang in an opera house in Cuba. I found out some information about that. But again, no 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 recording she had collections of jewels so there was actually i found when she got into her gardening by the way she then started to sell all her jewelry and just focus on her plants and there was like a she sold what was known as really the million dollar collection of her own jewelry so jewelry that had been commissioned for her and i actually found the auction the list of lots in the auction online in the new sotheby's in new york and in the end she gave up she gave up men bought lotus land with her last husband intending it to be a place of meditation he was a yogi he then left her and she just focused on the garden and created this extraordinary garden but everything was done to excess so she wouldn't just buy sort of one of each or three of each she would buy as many as possible i can't remember the exact numbers now but she the american palm society were going to come and visit her garden and she thought i haven't got enough palms for the american palm society so more were added to the collection but interestingly, she bought cycads as well. And if I remember rightly, her jewellery was sold to expand her cycad collection. And basically what she did and her extravagance has turned this. And I think this is such a great story. So Lotusland, and many of your listeners will have been there and will know, I, I would love to go and would know more about the detail than I do. But she bought the cycads and all these plants. And so consequently, it's become a conservation garden. So all the things that she lavished her money on actually were, has created a garden that was this operatic stage set for, for her, but also is a collection of amazing plants. And there was another American lady called Ray Sellingberry. And she was deaf. And her link to the world was through plants. She sponsored, her husband was quite prosperous. She sponsored great plant collectors like George Forrest from Scotland and Ernest Wilson and had an amazing plants person's garden. But I was fascinated by this lady. She corresponded with botanists and taxonomists and plant hunters around the world. And I was thinking that garden has got to be great. And then found at the end of my research that it had been 
built her. She died. The garden declined and it was built over. I go, oh, no. You know, what great yeah. that the garden ever existed. What a wonderful lady. Any of your listeners, go and check her out. Yeah. And the book, I believe, is available in, 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 in America, in, in North America. So do check them out. But it was just finding out about the personalities. And I think to be... I decided to be a great gardener. You've got to be slightly obsessive. Preferably, you should have a lot of money, so you can, <laughs> you know, so you can just go completely mad, or be prepared to live in penury and eat dry bread and drink water, so you can follow your obsession. And I think it was that sort of obsession. They all seem to be obsessive characters in some way, shape, or form, or use the garden perhaps as a you, as a, the gardening for the ego, a little bit like Versailles, Andre Lenotre, who, how could Andre Lenotre go from a gardener at the Tuileries Gardens in Paris and then expand his mind to the geometry and the mathematics and the symmetries of something on the scale of Versailles? Yeah. If somebody asked you to do it, Jared, how would you react? I would not even know where to start. That's <laughs> <laughs> it. Declined with thanks. Yeah, thanks, <laughs> thanks, very much. thanks for thinking of me, but yeah. but he took it on, and interestingly, he remained. He developed, continued to develop the garden, obviously with masses of manpower. But he remained a friend, a hands-on gardener, and a friend of the king right until the king's death. And not many people escaped with their heads still attached to their shoulders. So the character of the gardeners and some of the botanists as well, when they asked me to do the botanists, I sat there, I'll tell you what, Jared, I sat there thinking, what's a botanist? What actually, what actually, what actually is a botanist? Yeah, because you know? I get that I know, from I mean, students. Well, yeah, though they wonder what's the difference between botany and horticulture. So yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and the answer is obviously there there is big overlap there. The botanists are interested in the science the science of plants, but again the great botanists, a lot of them started out when I started looking. A lot of them were med medics because botany was part of medicine. Huh. So they would start to study plants and then start to study sort of the shape and the form and the medicinal uses. And what, one of the great ones was somebody called. Leonard Fuchs, who was when he, he was almost like a childhood proche, really. Uh, his knowledge of he was a professor at a university, the Tubingen, at the age of about twenty-two. But he was concerned that the doctors weren't knowledgeable enough about the plants because obviously the difference between a therapeutic and toxic dose, for example, or I miss identification of plants was really vital to the survival of the patient so he he would take his students his medical students out into the meadows and the fields to identify plants so he basically took them on a big plant ident spent a lot of time and actually wrote a herbal and it was the first herbal to be in color so he had two people working with him he had a woodcutter so the botanical artist drew the art he had a woodcutter who produced the image and then the books were printed, including the roots and the details of the fruits and the flowers, all botanically correct. And fascinatingly, and it's believed that he was one of the first to grow these in his garden, were lots of plants coming from the new world. So coming from your neck of the woods. So things like maize, 
and chili, some of the pumpkins. And it's thought that he actually would have grown, been one of the first people to grow those in a garden in Europe. Hmm. And I had the privilege of going to the Wellcome Foundation Library and they, one time with Gardener's Question Time, and they got out all of their herbals from their earliest herbal right through some to the present day, and including included in that was Fox's herbal. Now, you may not know about the man, but 30 years after his death, a French botanist called Charles Plumier discovered and named the fuchsia for him. I was so going to ask. I was going to ask if that was who that was named after. Yeah, um, you you got it in one, Jared. You got it in one. Top man. Yeah, go to the top of the class. Good fella. You got <laughs> it in one. And it, but the great sort of add on to that story is that Fuchs never saw a fuchsia. Wow! Be, because of it being found and named for 30, 30 years after him, the great botanists were interesting, and I did field botanists as well. So there was a story of George Forrest who collected in the Himalayas and just some incredible people and brought it up to the present day. In in France, there is an extraordinary man who is called Patrick Blanc and he was the sort of the originator of the green walls. You'll have green walls in, 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 the, in the US and North America. He was the first one to experiment with green walls. He's a, bot- he's a tropical botanist, actually. He has green tinted hair. So he's a real character. Somebody also said to me that, and I'd love to go to his house, that in his office or his lounge, I think it is, or where he works, there is a glass floor with a, with an aquarium underneath, green walls around the inside, and like tree frogs and jungle creatures living in his house. And you just go, this is fantastic. What an amazing person. And what an impact he's had on, on green walls, on buildings, when we're looking at how plants can help ameliorate the impact of climate change insulation and he's your main man for green walls and i had to sneak him in there were and also a, f- a friend of mine is in one of my books and i and he his name was will, will giles had a garden he had an exotic garden in norwich in the east of the uk and he was completely he was an old hippie i loved him to bits he was bonkers as anything he he lived with a girl for quite a long time and he just got so into his plants. And she basically delivered him an ultimatum. And she said, well, it's either me or the plants. And he thought for a bit, he thought, well, I love you, but the plants will give me greater happiness in the long term. <laughs> and she left, understandably left him. And he, just, and he just gardened for the rest of his life until he died with the most amazing and extravagant garden with tropical plants. And he effectively bed them all out with a bunch of his pals and then dig them all up. And for the first few years, he'd take them all in an old Ford transit van down to the greenhouse of the bishops of Norwich, because the Bishop of Norwich had a big greenhouse that was heated and had got lots of room. So he got and stuff all his plants in there. And it's these kind of characters that go with the plants and the art and the stories that make gardening and the art and the science and the practice of gardening such an age Jared it's such an amazing world to be in it's so interesting exciting and so full of fun and crazy people yes 
There are a lot of eclectic horticulturists and we love them all. In researching your book, I know part of it too was you shared lessons from the botanists for home gardeners. It, was there a repeating idea or a repeating characteristic of those people that you kept coming across time and time again that home gardeners should be doing or maybe a, a practice they should be doing? Yeah, the interestingly, the botanists, it became quite difficult to find practical elements to their work because the sign, the records of their lives was more about their botanical work like Gregor Mandel with his with his genetics but one thing that did uh, crop up particularly through great gardeners and really through great botanists was this and we've alluded to it before we've looked at the climate but the other thing is soils and the kind of plants that they grew in the particular air, air areas so if they were if they were on heavy clay a lot of the prairie plants that we use for late summer flowering will grow on clay and with a lot of the botanists it was it was about the soil types and the growing conditions but also with the botanists because they were studying plants they wanted to grow a wide range of species so they would be growing things for science more than for ornamentation or because you could eat it so they want to grow for science and the interesting thing there was that and i suppose it is reflected in the garden is that all gardeners want to grow what they can't grow i've got <laughs> just outside my office window just outside here i can just see it there's a rhododendron in a pot and you go matt why are you growing a rhododendron in a pot you're on a clay with flints in hertfordshire a pretty dry county in the uk and you go Do you know what i want to grow it because I just want to see whether I can. And the botanists, I think, were the same. And so we, what I realised with the botanists was how much that they were willing to adapt their horticulture to grow the plants that they needed or felt they needed to study. And But of course, the great thing with growing in containers is that most things will grow in containers. Not everything, but most things. and it doesn't have to be on a large scale so i've got i've had this sort of idea it's a borrow, it's a borrowed idea i have to say that you can grow alpines i've never grown alpines there's groups of plants that just don't i don't know just don't cross your path and yet i always when i was at q do you know jared i quite often find myself gravitating towards the alpine house so why it's never occurred to me to have a go at growing them, I can't tell you. But anyway, so somebody I saw was growing them in little pots. So you've got like shallow tra shallow trays about 30 centimetres or more across. And you can, you know, can grow them in there. Obviously, we aren't able to get hold of tufa anymore. It's uh, the limestone, but you can make your own. So I'm going to put together some pots of, of alpines. And you should, again, my gardening, my garden conditions aren't alpine conducive but you can people make rock gardens the other thing that i've discovered recently thinking about it is that i live in a bungalow and along the front of it about a meter and a bit wide right along its south facing so of course that for us in the uk it means that it's hot in the summer it's got got really gritty compost but then it suddenly dawned on me a while back that that gritty free draining compost which the mediterranean plants thrive in as a niche in the Mediterranean, your cistus and your lavenders and the like, is 
similar to that free draining gritty substrate that the alpines grow in in the alps in the himalayas in in colorado you know they are similar soil or substrate types so i've started planting rather weirdly some alpine plants amongst my mediterranean plants just as a, a sort of proof that this is how it works it doesn't it's not a great design by the way but it's just make it it makes a point yeah experimenting with plants i love it awesome thank you for sharing with yeah go on i was just going to say and i think that's what we should continue to do if you i don't know if you would perhaps normally buy a bottle of wine as a treat buy yourself a plant that you think might be on the edge of its boundaries and have a go at growing it because you've got two chances you'll learn something and the plants don't read the books so they don't know that who was an expert horticulturist had tried this in his one garden the one garden that he'd been in with his gardening conditions we're, we're all focused on our own gardens very few people have gardened in five or six gardens most of gardens stay there for life so give it a go that's what i would yeah. say and it's uh, probably better for you than a bottle of wine <laughs> that's right I also wanted to talk about your new book, A Home for Every Plant. Yeah. Now, oh, Jared, this has made my life because you have little things that you'd like to do. And one of them is I would all, always felt that if we could get children interested in plants, it won't stick with them through the teenage years. We all know that. We've, well, well, not necessarily. You don't have to expect too much. But it's highly likely to come back to them later on. And if we could actually get children to see plants and to give them some really interesting and exciting facts to educate them without them realising that they're being educated because the information is fun, it's delivered, as with this book, with the, with the most beautiful illustrations. The illustrations just really lift, lifted, uh, have lifted the, the whole thing. And I'm really pleased because on the front cover, in fact, I've got a copy in my hand now, it's got Matthew Biggs, which is that's me. And it's got <laughs> illustrations by Lucilla Perini. And Lucilla Perini's got you've got to check this book out because her artwork has just lifted it. She seemed to have is bright and colourful and cheerful. It's like a piece of contemporary art. So I've stuffed it full of botanical facts, really interesting plants. There are habitats of the world. We didn't just stick with the Amazon rainforest, but we've also got the Indonesian rainforest and the Congo rainforest, which is the second largest rainforest in the world and has the world biggest, the world's biggest peat deposits underneath it. There are little messages about conservation. I managed to, we had to find all the illustrations. So I was able to slip in there about peat bogs and find the six species in the UK and Europe, in the Northern Hemisphere, that are mainly responsible for the, the construction of peat or the making of peat. So all the plants are correct. All the animals in there. So the, there aren't many. We've allowed only the special ones in. Your name had to be, if your name's on the list, you can come in. Otherwise, this is a plant party. And all these these animals that are in there is trying to say to the children that without the plants, the animals would have no habitat. They would have nowhere to nothing to build their nests with, nothing to eat. The plants are just so important. The monkeys wouldn't have trees to swing through and so on. So 
the fundament the message really i think in the book was we go through from the coldest parts of the world to right through to the to the deserts the american deserts and parts of australia is that plants are really important and it's to cure this problem that you would know as plant blindness that people just aren't aware and i want to try and cure plant blindness in children before it gets too far but the stories again the book has got stories not just of the plants and their pollination i chatted to this weatherman peter uh, again and they asked me to do weather and climate and i said to peter look i'm fixed here because they've asked me to do weather and climate would you read what I've written and then correct anything? And he went, yeah, of course I will. Really, of course I will. And so I was chatting away to him and he had actually worked in the Antarctic. And I said to him, do you know, when we're in Britain, we always go north and think of the, the Arctic. And I said, I would love to go south and put the Antarctic in there too. And he went, he said, you know that I've worked there. And I went, yeah, I do. He said, there are two species of flowering plants in the Antarctic. Oh, no, <laughs> really? And he went, wow. I said, you're not, not happy me you're not just winding me up. And he went, no, absolutely not. And there are two species. And I found in scientific papers that there are two species. Um, one is called Colobranthus, a small cushion plant. The other one is a grass. But the little cushion plant Cleistogamous, so it because I was thinking, what about flies and what have you to pollinate? But it's Cleistogamous, so it can pollinate itself. <laughs> and there are also populations of this plant in Mexico, Bolivia, and Peru. And you go, oh, what the heck's it? Do? What the heck? How did it get down to the Antarctic? So we've got Antarctic plants in there. And as and oh yeah, there was another one just to show the kindness of people. This is a great one. The uh, the editor said to me, Matt why don't we do a desert fern? And I went, oh, Chilantes. Because <laughs> that was about the, only one I could think of, the only sort of genus I could think of. And I thought, I know. So I've got a pal, and I Googled where she had been. And she, I knew she's into ferns, and she'd been over to the US, to the Mojave Desert. And so I got in touch with her and said, this is really cheeky of me, but can you recommend a, a fern that is a desert fern that I could do a bit of research on. And for, and so she gave me the name. So I did some research. And then th I thought, I know what I'll do. It's got to be absolute. Every book has to be right. But this book has to be absolutely right because it's for the children. And obviously, sci I ended up looking at loads of scientific papers. So all the facts in here, there's lots of information on the internet, but all the yeah. facts in here been double checked i'll tell you another quick story to add to it uh, as well anyway so i thought i'll write to the american fern society through a geological society and they'll either go bin delete or there might be some kind person who goes oh it's a book for children let's see what we can do to help thankfully the the secretary did the let's see what we can do to help and they sent me and this email bounced to some of your great universities ended up at harvard with someone and i was sitting here in the uk thinking i can't believe this is just <laughs> sums up the spirit of horticulture yeah and what one of the one of the specialists said oh yeah it's really interesting it's viscid it's we call it the viscid lip fern and it's sticky on the top and you think oh that'll be to protect it against predators but then 
this email arrived saying, oh, yeah, it's quite interesting. We're looking at this and yes, protection. But also we think that the sand blows onto the leaf. The upper part of the leaf then is covered in sand, the small crystals, and it then reflects the sunlight. So it stops Mm. the leaves from getting scorched. Wow. And I am sure that piece of information is not in, it may be in a scientific paper, but is not in general in general knowledge and also the other bits of luck that you need when you write a book so of course we did what was victoria amazonica with the largest leaves in the world and i was writing about victor and then last year as what happened jared third they changed the name yeah yeah that's right and they did that just on time so it was (laughs) july last year wasn't it yeah july they found uh, bolivia named it boliviana so i was quickly able to no, that's right. In the right, a, right after that came out, yeah. we actually went and saw the three species at Kew. So it was just serendipitous. Like right after that article came out, I think it was just mere weeks before we went on our UK trip, we went to go and see the that third species that's been named at Kew. You've done one more than me. I can tell you that. Kew's <laughs> only, only about an hour down the road from me. But to see the three species together must have been extraordinary and the other fascinating thing was of course that species was identified from a herbarium specimen that had been in there at Kew so it's been hanging around for ages but nobody's really had a proper look or not to the point where they said actually this is a this is a new species but the timing for me was perfect because it because you imagine if my book had come out in May and was down as the greatest as Amazonica that would have just blown out the water really it would have been a I wouldn't say a disaster because it's not a disaster, but it would have completely devalued the book and caused a lot of problems. And can I just tell you one more story about it? Sure. There's things like Amorphophallus titanum, the stinky plant, because I wanted to include the Indonesian rainforest. We talk about overcollecting in there. We talk about the collection of maple syrup. And again, Mm, that's something that's that's more for me. And I put the maple syrup in there because the North American readers will know all about it, mm. but the European or New Zealand, Australia, other people won't. So you'll go, when you look at it, Jared, you'll go, yeah, man, I know that, I know that. But in the UK, people won't necessarily know it. And again, with the, re- the I knew that maple syrup came from maples and I knew how it was tapped, but all the details, the extra details that are in the book were, were from additional research. And in fact, my my brother-in-law and his wife they live in maine and so i got in touch with them and said tell me what you tell me what you know <laughs> and they were they were really helpful with the fact that they have shacks selling maple syrup and distilling the maple syrup so I'll, not all of it went in the book but i've got the background information for a lecture that also in the book is orchid underground flowering orchids from australia and while we're on to australia i was really worried with this book because there's so much botanical information in there. So though it's for six to ten year olds, have you seen a copy at all, Jared? I haven't. I've only seen the example pages that I was sent before we interviewed. And it's a beautiful book. Very colorful. Love it. You really ought to see it to understand where we're going with the with the facts and the ideas. But I was worried about having hundreds of botanical facts resting on my shoulders. So I wanted to find out there is a group of eucalypts called the the Mali eucalypts, 
or the Mali eucalypts, which was a, a sort of a habitat that used to, it, they've now changed it to the Aboriginal name and it's Kwangan. So we've, again, we've got that within the book. But I ghost wrote years ago the autobiography of someone called Carlos Magdalena, who was is very much into the water lilies. You yeah. would have seen his name with the giant water lily. And he, he mentioned somebody called Professor Kingsley Dixon. And I wanted to know how many of the, these eucalypts there were. And they're specific because they have a lignotuber. So when the fire goes through the, the bush, they will regenerate, like a lot of the South African plants have lignotubers. Or, and he'd mentioned this Dr. Kingsley Dixon, or Professor Kingsley Dixon. So I thought, oh, I need to find out these numbers of the 385 species of eucalypts, 180 of them are of this kind. So I just said to him, dear Professor Dixon, uh, my name's Matt, I'm writing a children's book, and uh, it's trying to tell children, we're calling it a home for every plant, wonders of the botanical world, would you be able to give me this piece of information? And so he, again, he'll either bin it, or he'll send me a response. I got such a lovely response from him as well, saying, great to hear you're writing a book for the children. That's fantastic. Here's the information you want. And I thought, he's been so kind. I'll write back and explain a little bit more. Explained a bit more and said to him, look, I'm, I'm, my next thing is to head down to Kew and see if I can find somebody who remembers me from my student days and see whether they'll help. I got an email back, Jared. Wow. Uh, more or less straight away saying, don't worry, Matt, I'll be your botanical checker. <laughs> and I said, what? And I said to him, look, I'm really sorry, but I have no budget for it. He went, doesn't matter. He said, I'll look through. So wow. he lifted a weight off my shoulders. And he, we've been through the book and through the book, and the facts have been checked and checked. And right at the end as well, there is information about how to children how to grow plants because that's Good. what you want to do so at the end of each of those sections if you're talking about the desert like here's four desert plants that you can grow either as a, in pots at home if you live in cold climates or doors in texas or whatever, <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. so we're trying to encourage children to take an interest in plants and to grow them and to see the range of plants that uh, oh yeah another little story i was I suddenly thought, what is the plant growing at the highest altitude in the world? And it's got to be something growing on Mount Everest. Oh, So I did some research and found a French scientific paper on plants collected by mountaineers, would you believe? (laughs) So I filtered through that. And there was an expedition up Everest led by somebody called Eric Shipton. And I found a picture of Eric Shipton in his tweeds and plus fours and all the old heavy climbing gear. And so there's him and his team. And so I asked Lucilla if she would put them in the background. So the plant's in the foreground. And it's just like a oh, homage cool. to him as a thank you. And I also wanted to put in there, I wanted to put Kingsley in there, but I was too late because I thought that would have been, how could I say thank you to him for his kindness? And I was just too late. There's also a really brilliant guy called Cornel Iwango, who's a conservationist. Google him, listeners, when you when you finish listening to this podcast, because the amazing things that he did to save the plants and the wildlife. He's a botanist. He's won awards. I'd never heard of him. I'm ashamed to say, but I wanted to get him in, but we couldn't again. 
the other mountaineers we got in there, the did the news get to the US about Nims Pajaro, who's an ex-Special Forces? He's a Nepalese guy and he was in the Special Forces in the UK, but he's just like a, a natural mountaineer. And he managed to climb all the mountains, all 14 mountains over 8,000 metres that are throughout the world, mainly Himalayas, Pakistan, mainly that part of the world. But he managed to climb and he and his team all of those in six months and six weeks, all of those peaks. So I sent uh, this little picture and said, can we have Nims Pajara and his team? Because people are still up there. I think he was too busy to be looking for plants, but just out of respect for what he's done. So they are just a little bit higher wow. up the mountain than Eric Shipton and his team. And it was, <laughs> it's those kind of little things that you can do. A friend of mine said to me, and I don't know whether you grow this as a water plant, but it's worth growing called, we call it water hawthorn, Apogonetum distachius. And it floats on the water, tiny little leaves, South African and fragrant with sort of cigar shaped leaves almost. And a friend of mine, Cherry, she said, oh, shit, I really like that plant. So I thought I'll stick it in the book. So that's in the book for her. And I said to her, Cherry, you, you mentioned to me one day that you really like that plant. I said, I've dropped it in the book for you. <laughs> so, so, it, so hopefully the children will be really fired up. They'll be drawn to it by the colours and they'll be fascinated by the facts because it is so full of facts. And I, I don't know that there is another book like it. And I'm hoping that children will understand the importance of plants. And even little things like Trachycarpus fortunii is a temperate palm, the Chusan palm. And I don't know whether that's grown in North America, but it's a big, the Victorians loved it. And of course, being a hardy palm, it added a bit of exotic to English gardens, particularly in the southern parts of the UK, down in Cornwall. It's been introduced to other countries, become a weedy species, actually, become quite weedy. But interestingly, during my research, I found that it's a bit of a weed in New Zealand, but is also an important food source for the, I think it's called the lesser short-tailed bat, which is mm. an endangered species. Mm. So even though it's a weed in most countries and a weed in New Zealand, it is actually contributing to the conservation of another creature. And it's those kind of things that that I find fascinating. And I just really hope the children, it's for children of all ages. That's what I decided in the end. Yeah. Because it's written quite simply, but it is rammed full of facts because when it's for children, they just want facts. They just want the facts and the interest. How can I keep them totally focused on the plants? Is and the only way I can do it is just by giving them little tidbits of facts. Wow! Wow! Look at this. Did you know that yeah. this is this uh, is pollinated by going back to the stinky flower Amorphophallus titanum? It's pollinated by species of bees, sweat bees, carrion bees that will fly great distances. That the fact that the the spadix heats up so that the pong rises higher into the rainforest and gets carried further on the wind. And it's all those kind of things that you know. Oh yeah, pop that one in. So. To be honest with you, I learned a lot. There was a lot of plants in there that I knew already, but I'll be honest with you and say that there were quite a few plants that I discovered during my researches that thought, wow, I've never heard of this. And that was the excitement of writing the book. And I just hope that the colour and the excitement 
oh, of, of the plants, some of the parasitic plants like the, I just flicked open just as a reminder, the Western Australian Christmas tree. Now, the Western Australian Christmas tree is the world's biggest parasite, has bright orange flowers. So it is a tree, it's tree size, but its roots go out and they've got like little snippers, like secateurs on the end, and they cut into the roots with their blades and then they extract the the nutrients and they are able to from surrounding trees and shrubs and grasses. So really nothing is safe. And to prove that nothing is safe, in the 1950s, NASA set up a space tracking station in the outback in Australia. So they were tracking their satellites and spacecraft. So they they, they built this very sophisticated mm. for, for the 50s building and with all the all the electrics that went with it. And then after a couple of years, they kept on having problems with the electrics. So the electrics would go, suddenly the lights would go out or the screens would go blank. And they, they checked everything and they got the electricians in. And then they thought, we better start digging up the cables. And they dug up the cables and they found, and when you dig up this plant, it's almost, if you imagine a a caterpillar in a circle so a white caterpillar white circular caterpillar that's where you can tell the roots where the roots were and they dug the cables up and found that the roots of this plant with their secateur like cutting blades had cut through the electric cables wow and it was armored cable they'd cut through the armored cable and that's what was causing the blackouts (laughs) that's amazing so it has to go in there and there's another tree in australia which has a fruit like a tangerine and often they'll just fall to the ground and germinate but the emus love them so if an emu finds one of these trees it'll just scoff a lot just eat as many as possible so emus cover vast distances you know hundreds of miles so they'll cover this they'll be running around looking for food looking for water going about and of course as they go they poo and you know how much children love poo <laughs> and what actually happens is the fruits go through the gut then the poo dries in the sun the seed cases then explode but you would think that would be it but it's not because around each or on each of the seeds there are you can correct me here jared if you will eliosomes the little have oil sort of oil cells in them or have yeah. oils in them mm-hmm. and so the ants are attracted to the oils the ants then take the the seeds that have exploded from the poo into their little habitations they eat the oils or get nutrients from the oils take the seeds out to their sort of waste waste dumps leave them there and that's where they germ- germinate Wow. I think that's one of my favourite stories because you go, oh, yeah, so it just explodes in the sun. No, it doesn't explode in the sun. That's not the end of the story. The ants then take oh. take the the seeds and just there's that little add-on that makes it even more fascinating. And the whole book, you can learn how to grow thyme or olives, but also the whole book. I just wanted to find yeah. the wildest, craziest. I found a plant in the rain in the temperate rainforest of Chile called Aquila, is its vernacular name. And it's a scrambling plant. And scientists again have recently discovered that it changes its leaf shape as oh, it goes yes. through and up to 12 different 
Have you seen that one? I've seen it, Reese, where it would change its leaf shape based on other plants around it. Yeah. And they planted it next to a plastic plant and it changed its leaf shape based on the plastic plant growth habit. No, I didn't know that. I think I didn't know that. I think that's the same plant we're talking about. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. 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 But anyway, what they did is they put the plant next to plastic leaves and it basically altered its growth. So I think it's the same plant. Oh, that'll have to go in the second edition then. Yeah. (laughs) That's a great fact. That's great. You don't yeah. mind me using that one? No, no, actually, I, I can find. I can try to find the scientific article because I shared it in my newsletter a while back. So if I find it, I'll send uh-huh. it to you. And we'll put all this in the show notes too. But I love how you've written a book that helps to try to cure plant blindness, this phenomenon where we walk through plants every day and don't pay attention to them. And I want to say too, you made a comment that it's hard to find what you want to put in the book because you and I know so much about plants. We assume everyone else does, and that's what we call curse of knowledge. But there's just so many fascinating stories about how plants can cut through wires, or I've never heard of a plant that needs two animals to help disperse it. First a bird and then ants. That's fascinating. So thank you for sharing all these stories. No, it's, it's, as I hope you can tell, it's my pleasure. It's just really exciting. It's the same. If it's a subject that you love and you suddenly find a gem, you go, oh, this is great. It makes yes. your day. You, you, when you go out to do your watering in the evening and check your plants, you're bouncing. You're absolutely yes. bouncing with this, the, the excitement of the knowledge that you've been privileged. And, and I think the thing is, if you are privileged to have this knowledge or know where to get it, to be asked to write it in a book and then to say that this is for children It's just like the best thing that anyone could ever ask you to do because you're sharing their little minds. I I went to a school and talked about plants and they're so curious. Their little minds, they want to know the questions they ask. They want to tell you about the carnivorous plants that they've grown. So -hmm. when you get them at that age group, they're really open to it. And I think that's why it's so important that... I would love it to be on the school's curriculum in the UK and the US to get the children, get it for your school library. I've had people who I know seem to be buying it in threes and fives. They go, yeah, I'm going to buy it for my niece and my, um, my, my nephew. And, my, and you're going, oh, please do, because it will put plants at the fore and the facts that they get and the realisation that without the plants, there will be no habitat for the animals. Yes. Then once they flip it r- round, and even in the bromeliads, so I've got Camille Zabrina from, from the Amazon. And again, searching through scientific papers to get the correct photographs. I've actually got the paintings are of the correct species of frog that are found in there and also these uh, snakes that they found in there as well. So all everything is to my best efforts anyway, absolutely correct. I don't think I've ever put so much into into anything, really. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate your attention to detail. So as we wrap up, do you have time for just a couple of rapid-fire questions? Okay, go on, go for it. As a horticulturist, a writer, an author, someone who does TV, you live a very prolific life. Is there one or two systems or processes that you use to help yourself as a horticulturist on a daily basis? 
Yeah, yeah. One of the things that's really important, and I haven't done enough of it, I have to confess that to you, is drip irrigation, is automatic irrigation within the garden because it's water conservation, conserves water. The plants are then watered properly, and it's a that's something that if you're living in an area where water is is in short supply and it seems to be with climate change that's the way things are happening here do think about installing drip irrigation sepos something it makes your life easier because the watering's being done people sometimes say to me your garden must be immaculate and i confess to you jared that <laughs> my garden is immaculate entirely because my wife keeps it because i'm busy <laughs> sort of writing and doing stuff yeah and i will go out oh I'll pop out and take the glory from time to time. <laughs> she works really hard on it in the veg garden and in the ornamental garden. And so having some help is really great. So I think that's important. And the other is, and it's important for us, is mulching. M- mulching in the garden, again, is, is not just keeping the weeds down. You can you mulch with various materials. In my border of Mediterranean and Alpine plants, it's mulched with stone chippings because they lock together rather than roll around like aggregate does. I've put those down, but that keeps some of the moisture in and the weeds down. And if the weeds come through, they're easy to weed. The other thing is, of course, making your own compost. If you make your own compost and use that and make it properly and use that as a mulch, you're recycling as nature would do anyway. The worms can do the digging for you and improve the soil, but you're also conserving moisture if in the UK you and in similar northern hemisphere climates you mulch at the end of winter when the soil is full of moisture you're actually improving the soil with without doing anything so i think if you're in a mediterranean climate de- definitely mulch with with stone chippings and think of using mulch and it makes a nice setting for the plants puts them in a, yeah. try and put your plants in a context as 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 well Mul- and mulching i think are both really important for the health of your plants and the other thing that I try and do, and this goes back to what we were saying about impulse buying when you go to a nursery or whatever. Jared, it's even worse now, isn't it? Because you can buy online. Oh, yes. You used to just go to the garden centre or the local nursery, and now you've got the whole world tempting you. But to try and put the right plant in the right place, and if you can discipline yourself to do that, you will save yourself a heck of a lot of trouble. The plant will be happy. You won't be having to worry about its its cultivation as much. And I think that's really important. And you, if you buy a lot of plants that, that I've cut down on the number of containers, for example, this year, because it just took too long, yeah. the containers. I hadn't put drip irrigation in and I wasn't going to invest in drip irrigation just for that. So we've cut down the number of containers and put more plants in the ground in the right place. So I think to try and uh, and of course the other thing that we I'm doing a lot more of now and you are too is that we're not using sprays or anything. So we're using disease resistant varieties. We're using netting and barriers and environmentally friendly soft soaps, plant oils, fish oils, whatever it may be, and gardening with the environment. But I think part of gardening with the environment is gardening with plants that tolerate the conditions. And I've got yeah. quite a because i've got i've got a bit of a tropical border thing going on but we're on clay and i can't i've really got to think about my conscience and how much longer you can't really be chucking drinking water on your border right it's not the right thing to do so whether to say look 
I had a tropical border for for 20 years of my life, loved it. Now it's time to do something else. Maybe that's the answer. Have I got the courage to do it? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) There's there's so many memories. That's the trouble in these plants and what have you. Yeah. Is there a book that you return to frequently for inspiration or knowledge? That's a really good question because I've got the RHS Encyclopedia of Gardening in, in four volumes. But what I tend to do is I've got a lot of specialist books. So there isn't one book, but I've tr- if I if there is a specialist book, I'm just trying to think. I've got a book on passion flowers, for example, on passiflora. So if there is something that is in depth, then I tend to go for that. If I need to refresh my memory, because it gets you like that in the end, if I need to refresh my memory for things, I do tend to go to the specialist books rather than general books. For general writing and about plants, Beth Chatto, who is a very famous yes. English nursery lady and yeah. right plant in the right place. Incidentally, Beth Chatto is in my Great Gardener's book. And I did find that her husband was an ecologist. So she was front of house doing the styling and the planting. He was in the back learning Russian and Japanese and and about, about the habitats, what's the steppe habitat like, so that she could put the right plant in the right place. So she'd get a plant, for example, or think about getting a plant. She'd go to her husband, Andrew, and say, look, Andrew, I've got this plant. Where's the best place for it to grow and tropiolum speciosum which is the flame creeper which is a climbing nasturtium from chile bright which you'd normally see in gardens in the west coast of the uk scotland growing through yew hedges taxus bucata because it makes a nice background to the red they managed to find a little microclimate and location to grow it in the one of the driest parts of the uk where the garden was now she wrote i had the privilege of meeting her once and uh, she was a dear lady i've got a photograph somewhere it's just i was like a you know, it's like meeting your hero i felt <laughs> like a little kid yeah. was, wow. <laughs> but she wrote some lovely books on the damp garden the dry garden and her books are really lovely to read so if you want to read and i've got some good plant recommendations in there as well so beth chateau's books make a lovely relaxing read you hear about the story the development of the garden you learn a lot about really interesting plants too yeah. I met her in 2010. Ah, good yeah. man. Yeah. So we were again on a school trip and we had a free day and everybody else wanted to go into London for the day. But I, several of my colleagues said, you have to go up to Beth's if you have the chance. And so I took two trains and a bus and arrived. And the lady who was greeting me, I said, is Beth around? And I might have name dropped a person or two saying she, they told me to come see. And sure enough, she came out and talked to me for about five, 10 minutes. And yes, so she, she is a dear. And, and the other thing too, is that I believe that I just saw on Twitter that this would have been her 100th birthday this yeah. week. Yes. A dear person. And I hate that yeah. she's passed from this world. So thank you for sharing Jim. her recommendations. Yeah, no, she's she was a remarkable. She didn't start. She didn't. In, interestingly, I found out she didn't start a nursery till she was in her forties. So she raised a family uh, and then started. She she was a floral judge. So she brought the ideas of floral art to flower arranging 
into the garden and then backed it all up with this right plant, right place and this fabulously artistic eye and scientific husband. But she was, yeah. I'm so pleased you met her. Yes, that's me got too. to be one of the that's got to be one yeah. of the highlights of your horticultural career. Yeah, you know, really, definitely, definitely. Yeah, great one to drop at dinner parties. That one. <laughs> yes. At the yes. End. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Second to last question. I feel like we've already addressed this a lot, but I always ask it on the podcast. We're great at propagating plants. How do we make more gardeners and help to spread the love of plants? Any more thoughts on that? Yeah, so spreading the love of plants, of course, you start off by buying my latest book to <laughs> capture them when they're young. And I think a lot of people in COVID uh, in the UK, garden centres, people realise the importance of plants. It, it, just slowly, there's a lot of scientific research being undertaken in the UK about the benefits of plants, about mindfulness, about being outside, the fresh air, the exercise. The impact of cut, the impact of colour uh, on the way that you feel. The RHS are doing some research, so I think what you, how do you get people interested? You show them around your garden. You then give them a plant, give them a plant, and get them started. Even if it's a house plant for their windowsill because they live in an apartment or a, a condominium or something like that just give them a plant and that's how you get them interested and tell them that you're there to help them tell them if it doesn't work out it doesn't die you'll buy them a new one and you will buy them a new one but you're going to make sure that they get success and i think you can go in with an attitude like like we did when we were young horticulturists we just love the subjects and we were prepared to have a crack success or failure and put it down to experience and the gaining of knowledge but if you've got people who aren't quite as nutty as that then just be there to help them along their way and for them to see that if something doesn't go quite right that mildew affects lords and ladies affects (laughs) people living on the beach in california or where living in martha's vineyard or whether they're living in chelsea in Chelsea and London, you'll still get pests and diseases on your vine and on whatever it may be. It's no respect for a person. So therefore, if it happens to you, you should be in flat you should be flattered to be included. Yeah, that's true. Last question. How can listeners find out more about you? Oh golly, that's really you to to ask that. We're just I don't really have a big I've got a I'll be honest with you, I've got a very outdated website. Uh, but it's the if you find out about what I'm interested in, because I feel, and I think you'll feel the same, I, I wouldn't be here without the plants. It's the plants that are the stars, not me. Mm-hmm. I'm just a facilitator. I'm just, just in, an enabler. I'm just allowed to dan- dance around amongst the flowers, in, indulging in a subject that I love and writing about it and sharing it. If you want to know, the, if, if you want to know about me, then have a look at the books that, that I've written the kind of things that I'm interested in. But if you really want to know what's catching my imagination at the moment, without any shadow of a doubt, it's this children's book, which is the best thing I think that I've ever written, the most helpful thing I've ever written, because it's for children who can't Mm -hmm. go out and do their own research and a home for every plant, wonders of the botanical world. Everyone, please go and check it out, buy it, because... It could change your life and even more importantly, change the life of your children who are the next generation because we're custodians of the earth. 
and they've got to be the custodians of the earth and if you can get them interested in plants through a home for every plant you are educating the new custodians Awesome. That was a great answer, Matt. And again, thank you so much. Your enthusiasm is infectious. Even though people can't see our faces, I really think it's going to come through. And again, I can't wait to have a look at A Home for Every Plant. Thank you for helping to bridge the connection between plants and children and people. I really appreciate your time today so much. And thank you so much, Jared. It's a real honor. I can tell you, it's such an honor for me to be on your podcast. So thank you for asking me. Yes. And I hope one day our paths can cross in the UK or the US. So until next time. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening today. Do you have questions or comments? You can visit theplantasticpodcast.com for show notes and to reach out and say hi. Remember, Plants can't talk, but we can. The plant world needs people to share how wonderful these green organisms are. So tell someone a fun fact about plants. Make it simple, make it remarkable, and most of all, make it plantastic. Until next time, keep growing.